To what do we attribute the enormous student debts that millions of Americans labor under? Could a group of former Corinthian college students refusing to pay down their debt succeed in bringing down a corrupt predatory lending regime? How does the $1 trillion student debt crisis compare with the subprime mortgage fiasco which led to the meltdown of 2008? Does the very use of money itself lead to inequality and environmental catastrophe? On the occasion of the three-week-old debt strike of former Corinthian college students demanding to be released from their loan obligations, the Global Research NewsHour examines the phenomenon of student debt liberation and its consequences with two critics of the current monetary system, Ellen Brown of the Public Banking Institute and Kelia Ramaris Watson, journalist and podcast producer based out of San Francisco Bay Area. On this week's program, Student Debt Trap, Breaking the Grip of the Predatory Lenders. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 13th, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, Global research.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Prominent academic and author Dr. Michel Chosodovsky warned that the so-called war on terrorism is a front to propagate America's global hegemony and create a new world order. Dr. Chosodovsky said terrorism is made in the U.S. and that terrorists are not the product of the Muslim world. According to him, the U.S. global war on terrorism was used to enact anti-terrorism laws that demonized Muslims in the Western world and created Islamophobia. Elaborating on his argument, Dr. Tosadovsky said that NATO was responsible for recruiting members of the Islamic State while Israel is funding global jihad elements inside Syria. Echoing Dr. Tosadovsky's arguments, Malaysia's prominent political scientist, Islamic reformist and activist Dr. Chandra Muzaffar said that the U.S. has always manipulated religion to further its global hegemony on sovereign states. That comes from a report from the Perdana Global Peace Foundation called Terrorism is Made in the USA. The global war on terrorism is a fabrication, a big lie, featuring Professor Michel Chosodovsky, posted March 11th. With the exception of about 10 news media, all news media in the U.S. and U.K. have rejected all of my many news reports about different aspects of America's rape of Ukraine, a rape that has been done specifically to use Ukraine as a proxy battlefield to draw Russia into war so that the American aristocracy can take over Russia. One news medium that has rejected all of these Ukraine reports is Alternet, which had published 
a number of my previous news reports, just none that deal with the rape of Ukraine, a rape that has been done by the Obama administration, and especially none of my reports about the U.S. coup, which had brought about the current racist, fascist, or Nazi, anti-Russian government there, and none about the new regime's ethnic cleansing to get rid of the residents in the area of Ukraine that had voted 90% for the man Obama overthrew. Ever since the May 2, 2014 Odessa massacre of pro-Russian demonstrators by government thugs, largely financed by a friend of the Obama administration whom they appointed to become a key governor in Ukraine, I have been writing mainly about Ukraine because I am attracted to those topics that are the most suppressed news beats in my country, the U.S., which is supposedly a democracy. Ukraine turns out to be the most suppressed topic of all. The news on it today is like the news about Iraq was in 2002 and 2003. It's stenographic reporting from U.S. government-approved sources. That comes from the article, Suppressing Key Facts, How the American Public is Deceived by the News, by Eric Zeus, posted March 11. The anti-war initiative Perdana Global Peace Foundation has a single goal of putting an end to war. Founded by Malaysia's former Prime Minister Dr. Mahathir Mohamad, the foundation encourages dialogues between different nations, people, and organizations to foster and energize global peace. The keynote address was delivered by Dr. Mahathir, who warned that Malaysia might lose its independence if the government falls prey to the ploys of the U.S. to increase its global hegemony through economic means. He pointed out that the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPPA, is a New World Order strategy by a powerful pact of people led by the U.S. to dominate the world economy. Other prominent speakers at the conference also said that a secretive power elite led by the United States wants to replace sovereign nation-states through regime change. That comes from the report from the Perdana Global Peace Foundation called A New World Order, A Threat to Sovereign States, featuring Tun Dr. Mahathir Mohammed, posted March 11th. A central section of the Act empowers CSIS agents to obtain judicial warrants on mere suspicion with no requirement for supporting evidence that will allow them to supplement other disruptive actions against purported enemies of Harperland with acts that directly violate the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and other Canadian laws. The only constraints placed on this legalized law-breaking are that CSIS agents shall not a cause intentionally or by criminal negligence death or bodily harm to an individual, b. willfully attempt in any manner to obstruct, pervert, or defeat the course of justice, or c. violate the sexual integrity of an individual. The second of these prohibitions, occurring in the midst of a bill that seeks systematically to obstruct citizens in the exercise of their rights, pervert justice, and defeat democracy, might tempt one to believe that there is a satirist at work within the Department of Justice. But the first and third clauses amount to an authorization of torture. On February 17th, two prominent legal experts, Clayton Ruby and Nader R. Hassan, remarked that the limited exclusions in these clauses, quote, leave CSIS with incredibly expansive powers, including waterboarding, inflicting pain, torture, or causing psychological harm to an individual, unquote. 
That comes from the article, Impending Threat to Canadian Democracy, Harper Government's Anti-Terrorism Act Isn't About Terrorism, It's a Torture Act, by Michael Kiefer, posted March 11th. As recently as a month ago, it was reported that an Islamic State operative claimed that funding for ISIS had been funneled through the U.S. Of course, another staunch U.S. NATO ally, Turkey, has historically allowed its territory to be a safe staging ground, as well as a training area, for ISIS. It additionally allows jihadist leaders to move freely in and out of Syria through Turkey. Along with Israel and all of U.S. Empire's Muslim nation states as our strategic friends in the Middle East, together they have been arming, financing, and training al-Qaeda, ISIS, to do its double bidding, fighting enemies like Gaddafi in Libya and Assad in Syria, while also posing as global terrorist boogeymen, threatening the security of the entire world. Again, Washington cannot continue to double-speak its lies from both sides of its mouth and then expect to continue having it both ways and expect the world to still be buying it. That comes from the article, The ISIS-U.S. Empire, Their Unholy Alliance Fully Exposed, by Joachim Hagopian, posted March 12th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. February 19th, 15 former students of the Corinthian School of for-profit colleges announced they would not be paying the student loans uh, that uh, they were owing, arguing the Corinthian is a predatory empire pushing hundreds of thousands into a debt trap and that the system of colleges did not deliver on their promise to provide a quality education that would secure them living wages at the end. Student debts have dramatically impeded the ability of the debtees to secure the basics of human life and uh, has affected hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of American citizens. To give us a better understanding of how American society got to this point and what can be done to reverse this trend, we're joined right now by Ellen Brown. Ellen Brown is the founder of the Public Banking Institute and has practiced civil litigation law in the law in Los Angeles. And uh, she's the author of a dozen books, including the best-selling Web of Debt and its 2013 sequel, The Public Bank Solution. She joins us now from Los Angeles. Hello again, Ellen Brown. Hello. Great to talk to you. The student debt crisis, uh, like what, what are the current dimensions of it? I, I understand there's about over $1 trillion uh, of student debt that's piled up. Right. Um, $1.2 trillion I've seen, or $1.5 trillion, I'm not sure which is the correct figure, but um, it's because, well, for, for one thing, states have cut back on their funding of, of tuition. When I went to school in the 60s in California, tuition was free. I went to Berkeley, graduated from Berkeley, and um, 
paid no tuition at all, and my entire bill was $6,000 for all of my undergraduate, four years, including a year abroad <laughs> with transportation, room and board. And uh, I went to law school in the 70s for $600 a year at UCLA, which was a state school. It's now $45,000 a year for an in-state student. So shockingly bad. So one thing that's gone wrong in California specifically is that um, Proposition 13 cut way back on um, real estate taxes, and that's what state and local governments depend on. But besides that, the University of California system got involved in these interest rate swaps with Wall Street. And so did, for example, Harvard University. Um, They're basically gambling, and they lost, of course. They're gambling with the big boys who were more sophisticated and sold them a bill of goods on those interest rate swaps. So, So they have big debts, and they're taking it out on tuition. So they're taking it out on the students. But also, um, in 2005, there was a, the Bankruptcy Reform Act of 2005 was pushed through by the big banks, rather, in the, in the dark of night. Nobody really noticed. That was in that bill, for one thing, derivatives now go first in a bankruptcy, which means that um, derivatives go before depositors. That's why we have this whole bail-in threat. Um, but also... Students are not allowed to go bankrupt, which is shocking. I mean, students of all people, these are young people who wind up suckering for the the big lenders come in and sell them loans they should never have gotten in the first place. I mean, they're they're naive, and they get into these loans that then burden them. Well, I know one young person who has $200,000 in debt. She has two master's degrees in education, and she wasn't able to get a job at Walmart because she was overqualified. So she'll never pay off that $200,000 debt. I mean, she'll just have to hide from it or um, what I guess 50% of those student loans are either in default or um, they're not being paid for one reason or another. So so they're very bad debts, and, and it looks like something that can't be paid off, but you, but it serves the corporatocracy in the sense that as long as students are heavily in debt, as soon as they get out of college, they have to go straight into a job if they can find a job. And they feel lucky if they can find a job. And so even these sweatshop jobs, I mean, I'm talking about sweatshop uh, white-collar jobs like lawyer jobs, which is I'm a lawyer and I know somebody who's an accountant who hates his job, but he's got to pay off his uh, got to pay off his debts so they don't have time to take to the streets and revolt or protest or read or learn what's really going on in the world they have to go right into the workforce and they're sort of trained their whole educational life these days to go right into the workforce they've cut out art they've cut out um, sports they've cut out music they've cut out all the sort of personal growth things the philosophical things. They've even cut out civics, which is how our government works. They don't want us to know how government works. And of course, they never, they've never told us how the economy works. I mean, they've never told us where money comes from. That's not something you learn in school. Are there direct parallels here between uh, the student debt crisis and the, the sub- subprime mortgage uh, uh, problems of a few years ago? Yes. Well, the student debt is bundled up and is sold off to to debt 
well, first of all, it's sold off to investors. But if the uh, if the debts aren't paid, then they sell them off to debt collectors, and that's why that's the opening for these movements we have now, such as Rolling Jubilee, where they buy up. Um, they purport to be debt collectors. I mean, they compete along with the debt collectors for this debt and buy it on for pennies on the dollar, and then they just forgive forgive the debt. But they can't do that for all of it because. Most debt is actually government guaranteed now, which means the taxpayers are on the hook if if it goes into default. Mm. But they can do it for private debt, you know, schools that are privately funded, for-profit schools. What efforts uh, are there to to regulate these things better? For uh, you know, there's no incentive, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I don't know that 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 would be a good question. Something worth researching. I don't know what efforts are being made. It, it one nice thing, <laughs> this probably won't happen. But the fact that debt is bundled up and it can be purchased like that, um, what the Federal Reserve did for the mortgage-backed securities when they all went bad after 2008 was they stepped in and bought up these bundles of mortgage-backed securities uh, with their quantitative easing, they could do the same thing with student debt and just forgive it, just rip it up, or just hold it and not collect it. But, of course, the Federal Reserve will say that that's beyond their mandate, but they've they've exceeded their mandate so many times. I mean, there are, there are provisions in the Federal Reserve Act for um, exigent circumstances, for doing things in an emergency, and they could do that. This is going to be the next emergency. Um, a trillion and a half is a, is a huge debt that is saddling all our young people who cannot go out and buy houses and get job, or start businesses. All those things that did stimulate the economy after World War II when the GI, we, we had the GI Bill where um, the soldiers who, who came back from the war were, were able to go to school for free and they were able to get low-interest loans to buy homes, to buy farms to buy to start businesses and that uh paid it repaid itself seven times over it was such a good investment and we should do that again but we just have this totally wrong idea about the government spending money we think that the way to get the economy going is to cut back on government debt but actually it's to get out there and spend or if it's the if it's the federal reserve it's just quantitative easing you're not even spending you're merely printing money and and buying up debt with it and holding the debt or ripping up the debt i imagine that uh you you're writing off all that debt for students would have a much bigger impact on the economy than that uh uh, the, the the first quantitative easing we saw with the, uh, the well, bailouts, the, no? Yeah, the first QE bought the debt off the banks, so it helped the banks. But we want to buy the debt from the students or buy get get that burden off the backs of the students. So that could be done, just buy them from those same debt collectors that are holding it. It's not necessarily banks. I think it would be very stimulating yeah. to the economy, and of course, the objection that I, there are two objections I've heard. Inflation. One is this bad theory that that if you that you'll inflate the money supply, but obviously you won't. I mean, you won't drive up prices because we know that prices are still depressed, even though or we're we're in a recession, even though the Fed has engaged in 
extensive quantitative easing over the last, whatever, five years, I guess, six years, seven years, six. Um, so it would not, in fact, inflate prices. And if you look at what the GI Bill did, it would actually stimulate the economy. You'd, you'd stimulate the tax base. Um, money changes hands seven times in a good economy. So if you put a dollar out there, and if the average tax rate is 20%, I think it is, so a dollar circulating seven times, and e if each one pays 20% in taxes, you're going to get more than a dollar back in taxes. But mm. it's hard to persuade legislators of, of these rather well, rather obvious mathematical things when you look at it. Well, paying like bailing out the banks, did that have any kind of a, a stimulative effect? Because I guess one could argue in theory that uh, you know, having been bailed out, they could go and and you know invest in uh, or you know uh, further investment in all sorts of different economic activities and create jobs. That uh, any of that, any evidence that anything like that happened? <laughs> no. no. What did they do with that? <laughs> Just right. Well, the. It did certainly help the banks. It kept kept them from going bankrupt, but they should they should have gone bankrupt. That's the the ordinary way of cleaning up. Ba I mean, that's what you do in capitalism: is you sink or swim according to these laws of of competition and supply and demand. If you lose, then you go bankrupt. But instead, we saved these rotten businesses and so they're still they're still running on a rotten or corrupt model and the money the money went um well in quantitative easing the money doesn't actually leave the whole um the reserve system but what it did do was it um freed up reserves so that these banks could buy other things so what they what they would buy with them would be um government securities, for example, and then they could use those as collateral in the repo market, which is off the books. And in the repo market, then they can borrow, and so they can borrow very cheaply, and they bought, they bought stocks and um, ports and, you know, commodities, gold, and things that they've, that they've stashed on ships in order to drive up prices. So, so they're totally being allowed through first very low interest rates which which the the fed drove the the um the uh prime rate to virtually to zero and second by the fact that they've been freed up from these toxic assets that were on their books that turned them back into good assets that they've been allowed to speculate so that, so they're just gambling for their own accounts it it doesn't they don't make nearly as much money making loans to small and medium-sized businesses as they do to making loans to their own hedge funds, let's say, which are out there busy gambling. So, so they, so they virtually, so they've radically cut back on the loans that they're making to small and medium-sized businesses. So it's actually hurt the the ordinary economy. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, other than that uh, comparison with the GI Bill, uh, is there uh, any way you could make a, a, a more precise uh, uh, prediction in terms of uh, how much of an, a, a stimulation the economy would get from relaxing those student debts? Hmm, I don't know how you would. No particular, yeah. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not don't know how you would figure that out mathematically, but certainly there have been. Um, 
instances in history, like the bank when the Bank of Canada um, lent interest-free to the Canadian government and stimulated the economy. They set up their your great health care system. I mean, it was great at that time anyway. 1939 to 1974 was when the Bank of Canada, when the government borrowed directly from, from the Bank of Canada. Hmm. And so they, they funded roadways and seaways and their, Canada's participation in World War II, which I guess was substantial, and... Um, various social programs. So it, it works out very well to, and, and of course, free education. And, and we, we, everybody had free tuition right up until, was it maybe the 70s? Hmm. So um, we, as, as mentioned at the outset, I mean, we have a, a debt strike underway. And uh, I, I don't know if you have any uh, uh, concerns about uh, how this could unfold. I mean, is it is it? There's a possibility this could backfire on the uh, uh, on the the strikers themselves. Uh, maybe some form of garnishment of their uh, their assets, and and it may, may not have the impact they're hoping for. Or do you see this as being kind of a um, maybe a, having a domino effect that uh, could actually result in real changes? Well, I, there's not too much difference between striking and just defaulting, and and a substantial portion of those students have defaulted, and they just find. I mean, I think <laughs> I think it's a safe thing to do, particularly if they all do it together. If they don't have the money, what can they do anyway? They have to default. They might as well make a, a statement while they're doing it. Hmm. Fair enough. Um, do you have any sense? I mean, if it seems like this, uh, you know, I, I think you, you've said that this is uh, uh, potentially the next major financial crisis. Uh, I mean, how, how much longer can this uh, particular student debt bubble uh, remain in place before the, the inevitable happens? Well, and if you compare it to the housing crisis, it wasn't really the housing debt that triggered the 2008 collapse. It was really the derivatives, um, the leverage that Lehman Brothers engaged in. I mean, all those banks were engaging in leverage, excessive leverage. So I don't know that that, I mean, arguably, the debt could continue on. Like in Greece, for example, I mean, we could just go into a real depression where 50% of the, or more more than 50% of the student or the young people, the younger workforce is out of work. But what you will, will precipitate, well, I would hope you would precipitate, is a revolution. I mean, not necessarily a violent revolution, but an overthrow of the existing system. In Greece and um, Spain and India, these third parties have emerged that have suddenly taken a major portion of the vote. And like in, in Spain, the Podemos party just uh, just emerged like a year and a half ago, and they're already the dominant, the, um, the, the front runner. And it's, and it's basically like the Occupy movement. It's basically a populist movement saying, we have had enough. So, so that, But they managed to break through the two-party system and come up with a third party. So if we got strong, if we had a, a third party, we don't have a third party now that's strong enough to break through the um, 
the strictures. I, I actually ran for treasurer as a green in California, and I could see that it's absolutely hopeless if you don't have the money to get on television. So I don't know if it would happen here, but but one thing all those young people have in common, in fact, all and along with the people who have lost their homes and people who have lost their jobs, I mean, there is a huge commonality among all these people, and that is that they are hopelessly in debt. So if they could get together on that basis and form a political party, it does seem like there might be hope of of um, shaking the big corporations loose. I mean, you have to get around things like the TBP, and <laughs> it does look a bit hopeless, but revolutions have happened. I don't mm-hmm. think we could do a violent revolution, and we shouldn't do it. I mean, we shouldn't even consider a violent revolution, but I think we could do a political revolution if we had enough common understanding. In other words, if we could reach people through the media, maybe through it would have to be the the internet because we probably can't afford TV. <laughs> and if we could get people to unite on specific issues. I mean, one problem right now is that you have all these groups that are all trying to change things, but they all have their ideas of how things should, well, like I'm in the monetary reform um, field, and even in our field, we don't all agree. They, we, we're still arguing about how money even works. So, so we're still arguing about what the solution is and what has gone wrong. But if we had like a a blueprint that we all agreed on, some maybe simple things like this debt is overwhelming and we must do something about it, and we could all act on that on those simple platforms, I think there would be a good chance of maybe winning some elections. Ellen Brown, thank you very much for your insights. Thank you. We've been speaking with Ellen Brown, founder of the Public Banking Institute and the author of the best-selling Web of Debt and its 2013 sequel, The Public Bank Solution. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Kellya Ramirez Watson is an independent broadcast journalist and podcast producer. She has devoted much time and energy to the question of debt and economics and has come to the conclusion that the money system must not only be reformed, but dispensed with altogether. She's based in the San Francisco Bay Area. In September of 2011, she gave a speech in which she fielded the idea of students defaulting on their loans as a political action a maneuver now being implemented by the Corinthian 15 debt strikers. For the rest of the hour, we will hear Kelly Ramirez Watson's talk on Why Economy Fails Us. This speech is dedicated to the memory of Dennis Paul Abrams, a Nevada man who committed suicide in 2010 at the age of 57, broke and in ill health after the job market had discarded him at age 55. His death certificate lists his last occupation. The state would not allow him to be listed as unemployed. The corruption of data makes it difficult for epidemiologists and investigative journalists to see the full impact of long-term unemployment, and I think that's deliberate. 
This speech is also dedicated to people around the world from Wall Street in New York to Athens in Greece who are protesting the predations of finance capitalism. I'm a demonetarist. Rather than looking for ways for all of us to make more money, I believe that we must end money and create the truly free world. But to create the free world, we must raise our consciousness, and that starts by asking the question, why must we pay to live on the planet we're born on? Matthew Vadim of the Capital Research Center recently wrote an article for the American Thinker in which he said, why are left-wing activist groups so keen on registering the poor to vote? Because they know the poor can be counted on to vote themselves more benefits by electing redistributionist politicians. Welfare recipients are particularly open to demagoguery and bribery. Registering them to vote is like handing out burglary tools to criminals. It is profoundly antisocial and un-American to empower the non-productive segments of the population to destroy the country, encouraging those who burden society to participate in elections isn't about helping the poor, it's about helping the poor to help themselves to others' money. That is Matthew Vadim of the Capital Research Center. That's the best of a bunch of wonderful quotes by the right wing that I keep coming across every day. What I call un-American is Vadim's presumption that it should be self-evident that the productive segments of society are a better class of people. As Thomas Jefferson put it so eloquently in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, and we know now that means women too. And of course, we haven't yet actualized that proposition, but it must be our goal. Here's how we are equal despite all of our many superficial differences. We come into this world naked and helpless from the womb of a woman. We all go through a common maturation process. We crawl before we walk, we walk before we run, etc. And rich or poor, we all die, and you cannot take it with you. He who dies with the most toys still dies. David Corton, co-founder of Yes! Magazine, wrote in a blog that money is a system of power. The more our lives depend on money, the greater our subservience to those who control the creation and allocation of money. If you are subservient, then you are not equal. Some people have the power of life and death over other people by their ability to grant or deprive a person of employment or of their willingness or not to purchase the goods or services put into the marketplace by an entrepreneur. Life or death, I'm not exaggerating. Maybe some of you have heard of Kyle Willis, the 24-year-old Cincinnati man who died of a tooth infection because he was unemployed, uninsured, and unable to afford the medication that would have saved his life. Everyone should be free to decline the labor or the goods of another person. But that freedom to decline must never threaten the life of that other. The legal definition of assault is an act that puts a reasonable person in fear for life or limb. So in a money-based economy, a layoff 
is an act of assault. The right wing is always blaming individuals for not trying hard enough. The more the media reports about jobs being cut, the more the right wing talks about personal responsibility. On September 16, 2011, Representative Steve King, ridiculous of Iowa, took to the House floor and spoke out against unemployment insurance. He said, the 80 million Americans that are of working age but are simply not in the workforce need to be put to work. We can't have a nation of slackers. We've got to get this country back to work and get those people out of the slacker roles and onto the employed roles. But neither politicians, left or right, nor the media talk about the ugly truth. Our economic system allocates resources competitively, but the nature of competition itself creates losers as well as winners. Consider sports. 50% of the teams in any league, in any sport, from your neighborhood beer league to the pros, will lose on any given day. We know this before any of the games begin on any day. It doesn't matter how hard the teams try, how experienced, skilled, or disciplined they are, how well coached or managed they are, 50% will lose on any given day. Everyone plays by the rules, all the officials are perfectly honest and fair, 50% still lose. And in the so-called individual sports, such as golf or the various forms of racing, the ratio of losers to winners is much higher. It is the nature of competition. Personal responsibility does not overcome the very nature of competition. Take baseball, for example. We're now at the end of the season. There were 30 teams in the major leagues. At the end of the year, only one team will be the world champion. Now, every team wants to win the World Series, but only one will. So if success is winning the World Series, 29 out of 30 teams will fail every year. And that's a 96.66% failure rate. Now, apply that principle of competition to the job market. Getting a job is the success. Not getting the job is failure. On October 21st, 2009, the New York Times published an article by Michael Luo called $13 an hour, 500 apply, one wins job. Wins. My analogy to sports is not far-fetched. One person succeeded, 499 failed. That's a 99.8% failure rate. That's worse than even trying to win the World Series. But you say, oh, that's only one job. Well, it doesn't get much better when you have multiple jobs involved. On April 19, 2011, McDonald's held its first ever National Hiring Day. The plan was to hire 50,000 workers. On April 28th, Bloomberg.net, a highly respected business website, published an article by Leslie Patton headlined, McDonald's hires 62,000 in the U.S. event, 24% more than planned. It said, quote, McDonald's and its franchisees hired 62,000 people in the United States after receiving more than one million applications. 62,000 out of a million is 
they said that actually more than a million applied. So let's just say it's 6% were hired. That means a 94% failure rate. Better chance than winning the World Series, but not by much. The story goes on to say that McDonald's spokeswoman, quote, declined to disclose how many of the jobs were full versus part-time. But that's how they hired the 24% extra. How do I know? Because any business only needs so many people. So 6% of the applicants into McDonald's got in, although for some it was only part-time. Now, McDonald's has a training program for its managers called Hamburger University. So that inspired me to look up the well-known U.S. News and World Report college rankings that gave the following acceptance rates for the fall 2010. Now remember, McDonald's is 6%, Harvard 7%, Yale 8%, Brown and Princeton 9%, Columbia 10%, Dartmouth 12%, and the University of Pennsylvania 14%. The people who applied to Ivy League colleges had a better chance of getting in than the people who applied to McDonald's. We live under a cultural imperative that everyone who has the physical and mental ability to gain employment must earn a living. Once we earn a living, aren't we already living? Or they must be supported by a job holder if they're not working outside the home, preferably in the context of the married heterosexual nuclear family. Reliance on the public is supposed to be the very last resort under the doctrine of least eligibility. That's a doctrine that goes back to the Puritan days. And that doctrine held that charity should be a less eligible choice than the meanest form of work in the community. And that doctrine still bears on modern times. In 1984, I lived in a rooming house in Indianapolis. One of the other boarders was a Vietnam vet who was out of work. And when the vet was down to his last can of tuna, he called on the Perry Township trustees for help. They sent over a social worker who looked in the cupboards and saw the can of tuna and said she could disqualify him on the grounds that he still had a single can of tuna. She didn't do that, but she made it clear that she could. Now, get this. If you went to the township trustees for help, you were supposed to have absolutely nothing and then wait one week for your first benefit check. That's the doctrine of least eligibility. They figure that if you know you'll go hungry for a week, you'll take any job. But at the same time, we have the competitive job system. You may want the job, you may qualify for the job, but that doesn't mean you're going to get the job. Depending on what your source is, you hear that there are anywhere from three to eight people on average for every job opening right now. I applied for a part-time job last summer, which I didn't get, and I was told that they had over 80 applicants. Personal responsibility does not counter the nature of competition. So you say, well, we just have to create more jobs. Well, but businesses exist to make money, not to provide employment. B 
businesses only hire when they find it beneficial to their ability to make a profit. On September 9, 2011, the New York Times published an article by Matoko Rich full of reactions to Obama's jobs plan. It was headlined, Employers Say Jobs Plan Won't Lead to Hiring Spur. In that article, a businessman named Jeffrey Braverman said, you still have to have the business need to hire, while a $4,000 credit would offset the cost of the company's lowest-cost health insurance plan. He said it would not spur him to hire someone. Business demand is what drives hiring, he said. I know personally how capitalism uses unemployment for its own ends. I worked for a law book publisher called Bancroft Whitney between mid-1987 and the end of 1991. After that, I worked for the company, which by that time had been sold, as a so-called independent contractor. And why I say so-called is a story I don't have time to tell right now. I tell people that I did the work for four and a half years in-house, and for five and a half years outhouse. At first, it was a good deal. I took my severance and I went to school full time for a year. And I made my own work schedule. But after three years of outhouse work at the same rate, I inquired as to a raise because the cost of living was going up. I got back a letter saying that market reality was such that there would be no raise because there were people waiting for work who would do it at my current rate. That's why people like Matthew Vadum, who call the poor, especially welfare recipients, the non-productive segment of society, are wrong. The unemployed are performing a function that capitalism wants. They provide slack in the job market to keep a downward pressure on wages. So as the poet John Milton said, they also serve who only stand and wait. Here's another problem about job creation, advances in technology. We have a gross incompatibility between the cultural imperative of gainful employment and the reality that businesses operate to turn a profit, and part of turning a profit is lowering your production costs. Remember the McDonald's hiring day I just told you about? Well, while McDonald's was hiring in the U.S., they were experimenting with a way to cut back their workforce in Europe. On May 16, 2011, a website called Investor Place published an article by Cynthia Wilson based on information from the Financial Times of London, which is England's equivalent of the Wall Street Journal. Wilson's article was titled, McDonald's Replaces Cashiers with Touch Screens, European Restaurants Test Self-Checkout Model. And let me quote from that article. The move at McDonald's is similar to what many consumers experience in supermarkets, retailers, and gasoline stations that have opted for self-checkout to save on labor costs. But suppose everyone who wants a job gets one. I'm going to show you now where socialism goes off track. I have heard socialists say that a job should be a human right. Now, I admire the intent of socialists to see that everyone has income in a money-based world. 
But if everyone had a job, eventually they would overproduce and then what? Ship overseas? Well, what about the other countries that are making stuff? Well, they could ship stuff here, and that's in fact what they do at a great waste of energy because someone can profit from the deal. But eventually people slow down or stop their buying for a time because they don't need or want all that stuff anymore. Inventories pile up. Businesses lay off workers when the inventories build up, and they wait until consumers want to buy again before they hire again. We see it most prominently in the durable goods like automobiles. How many cars can you have? Well, if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is a familiar boom and bust cycle. It is built into the system even when there's none of the Wall Street chicanery that we have been victimized by over the years. We only need so many things at a time. Most of us think it's crazy that Imelda Marcos had over 3,000 pairs of shoes. But the biggest long-term problem in creating more jobs is the drain on the world's resources, especially considering our numbers. We're supposed to reach $7 billion this October. Some people said we've reached it already. We do need to rein in our numbers, but that won't necessarily solve our economic problem. According to the search engine Wolf from Alpha, there were just over 2 billion people in the world in 1930. But given the size of our population now, it behooves us to use our resources wisely. And money does not allow it. We waste resources fueling markets so that we make money. We're told in the U.S. that the consumer demand is responsible for anywhere from two-thirds to 70% of our economic activity. We are supposed to buy stuff so that other people have jobs and make money so that they can buy stuff, so that other people have jobs and make money so that they can buy stuff, and on and on and on. In the process of keeping people buying stuff, we have fad, fashion, planned obsolescence, and the disposable society. Did we really need the pet rock, the flat cat, and new coke? Do we need new models of cars every year? How many smartphone upgrades represent genuine innovation or just an extra bell or whistle to maintain a certain price point? iPhone 5 comes out next week iPhone 4 is only 15 months old. The worst is planned obsolescence and the disposable society. The idea that goods can be made cheaply and they function very well for a while, but they have a relatively short lifespan and it is cheaper to buy a new one than it is to repair the broken one. How many resources are wasted because we keep making new things to replace the broken stuff instead of making the item sturdier to begin with and more cost-efficient to repair? With 7 billion people on the planet, we cannot afford a disposable society anymore. We have to make less stuff, so that's fewer jobs. You cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. Writer Edward Abbey said, growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. The world's monetary systems are indeed a cancer on this planet. We have developed whole industries dedicated not to providing useful things, but to making money from money. 
we have de-skilled and debased real work for the sake of lowering costs to help make a profit. We have replaced people with technology, not for safety, but to make money. We have stinted on safety standards so as to make and save money. We have turned work, which is all around us, into a limited number of jobs. You have to understand, work does not equal jobs. And then we have invented more and more ways to eliminate people from consideration for jobs and hence for money. The latest is that there are employers who are discriminating in recruitment against the unemployed. And there are actually bills in Congress to outlaw these placement of discriminatory job ads, but you know if the employers can't openly discriminate in this way, they'll just ignore the applications of the unemployed while we maintain the cultural imperative of gainful employment. Why? And last but not least, we have the unsustainable system of compound interest that demands that economics and economies grow and grow to keep up with interest payments that benefit only a tiny minority in the world at the expense of everyone else. Interest payments are the real reason the world is in the debt crisis it's in today. The higher the interest rate, the more money is put into paying for past economic activity over time, making less available for the present and future economic activity because you are paying interest to the financiers. Matthew Vadim said it is profoundly antisocial and un-American to empower the non-productive segments of the population to destroy the country. Now well, he's right. But the non-productive segments of the society are not the welfare recipients. They are the damned financiers who not only fail to produce anything of real value for the country, but they inhibit the productivity of others and they destroy the country for their own gain. How many good companies delivering real products were hurt because their suppliers would no longer accept letters of credit from their banks during the credit crunch? Do you know that the banks still are not making enough business loans because the Federal Reserve, which is as federal as Federal Express and should be consigned to the dustbin of history, the Federal Reserve pays interest on excess reserves. And the banks would rather take these risk-free interest payments rather than risk making a loan. Who is non-productive now? So, how do we totally dismantle the financial industry worldwide and build a truly free world? Peaceful revolution. I would like to see the American students lead a peaceful revolution against the finance capitalism by organizing a mass simultaneous default on student loans. Student debt has become a larger bubble than the mortgage bubble of 2007. Their mass default, done as a deliberate political action, would be the clarion call for the rest of us to rip up those predatory mortgages and usurious credit cards and render those credit scoring agencies redundant, as the Brits would say. We would all have bad credit scores, but on our terms. And then let's see employers and landlords try to use credit ratings as the basis for a hiring or renting decision as they are doing now. Destroy the financial industry in the United States and the rest of the world will follow. 
But tearing down the old system is not enough. What would we build in its place? How about lives and societies centered on personal relationships with other human beings and with nature, not on employment and consumption? Work done because of the need for the goods and services produced and not merely to keep markets active and people busy. We must respect the diversity of humanity. That diversity will provide a variety of goods and services to choose from. People sometimes criticize my vision for the world by saying that if everything were free, only a few people would work, and they think that taking something from someone else that someone else has made without paying for it is theft. But how do you steal something that is free? Let's make it a world where work is a gift, not a duty. The critics are worrying about the wrong thing, most people want to be useful in some way. They will want to do things because it would be boring otherwise. When we're left out of the employment system against our will, we start to feel useless and depressed, even if we have money. That's why some people get depressed when they retire. The problem right now is that the system demands that nearly everyone work while simultaneously making us ask permission to do what the society demands, because that's really what a job application is. It is a request for permission to work. Economic activities should be peripheral and helpful to our lives, not the essence of life, not the highest expression of what it is to be human. No one, upon receiving a terminal diagnosis, ever says, I wish I had spent more time at the office. We must also honor leisure. Leisure has had a bad reputation since the days of the Puritans. Idle hands are the devil's workshop and stuff. But today we have many illnesses due to stress from overwork. We don't have enough time for our families and friends, our bodies, minds, and souls. I used to have a poster that said, it is not enough to be busy. The question is, what are we busy about? Are you proud of what you do? Would you do it even if you didn't need the money? Or are you working a job because you gotta pay the bills? If your answer is the latter, I hope that as of tonight, you start asking, why must we pay to live on the planet we're born on? All change begins by questioning the status quo. Thank you. That was Kelia Ramaras-Watson, independent journalist and podcast producer. She's based in San Francisco and is currently working on a book on alternative economics. Her website is www.patreon.com slash Kelia. Anyone wishing more information about the Corinthian 15 and the debt strike movement should visit www.debtcollective.org. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com.
I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.